Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. You know, there's many times that we find toxic people at work. And yeah, we have to work with them. We don't have to like it. But we do need strategies. We do need a way to think it through. We do need to remember why we're at work. And today I'm going to be talking with Corey Poirier. And he wrote the book of why and how. So we're going to talk about toxic relationships at work, their impact, and what you can actually do if you're faced with such a situation. Stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Save Your Sanity. So glad you're here. I'm glad if you're coming back because that means you found value. And if you're new to Save Your Sanity podcast, you're so welcome. I hope you'll find insights and strategies that will let you know you are not alone in what you're experiencing. This is such an important thing. And today I'm going to be talking with my friend and colleague, a fellow podcaster, Corey Poirier, who has experienced toxic relationships, has written about toxic relationships, and specializes in talking about that at the workplace. Corey is a multiple-time TEDx speaker. He's the host of the top-rated podcast called Let's Do Influencing. He's the founder of the Speaker Program and Blue Talks. That's something we'll ask him about. That's something new and interesting you might not have heard about. And you know, he was recently nominated as the Entrepreneur of the Year for Your Holistic Earth. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you so much. I'm super stoked to be here, Roberta. Well, me too. We haven't had a conversation since lunch almost a year ago. So woohoo, let's go. <laughs> um, you know, I know you've had a varied and successful entrepreneurial career. Um, but were there any toxic relationships that were obstacles on the way for you? Yeah, there. I mean, there's both sides. There's personal and professional in terms of things that may have impacted me along the way. And, you know, the first one, and, and I don't know how toxic we would say it is versus uh, maybe a, a lack of compassion and a lack of, um, I'm going to say, almost connection in my life with it. And it was with my father. So mm. my mother, for the most part, did the raising of me which is really intriguing because my father lives like 15 minutes away. So it's not like it's a scenario where, you know, like I didn't see him ever, but it was more one of those relationships. I'd see him every two years and he'd say, Hey pal, what's up. And, but at the same time, when I was quite younger, uh, my mother being a single mother and raising me, he would call and say, I'm going to pick up my son at school and you'll never see him again and things like that. And it actually drove my mother into a nervous breakdown when I was probably around 12. So I would say at that point it was a toxic relationship. 
Oh, I would say that we have a big red flag on that one, (laughs) you know, for sure. Because when you have an absent father, there is things, there are things that happen psychologically. You know, I raised my kids mostly alone, so I understand that. Their fathers were present, but they weren't in the home for most of their uh, of their time. Um, and when you have this situation where you have fear injected, but you have an absent father, that is very difficult. Unfortunately, it's also very common because hijackals, you know, that's my term for the relentlessly difficult, toxic people that we're talking about, because... We don't know if they have a clinical diagnosis or not, so let's just call them hijackals. But hijackals circle back when they need supply, when they need to feel powerful, when they they want to put the fear in you so that they feel like they have something over you or can get something from you. And that's what you're describing is, you know, dad just wants to constantly keep mom just on the edge just a little concerned, just a little hypervigilant, or maybe a lot. And if if she actually had that kind of emotional distress that caused her to break down, probably it was way more than you even knew. Yeah, I would say, especially that young, at that age, I didn't really, to be honest, I didn't, I'd never even heard of anybody having a nervous breakdown until my mother did. And I really, they tried to shelter it from me to some degree. Like I, I went to stay at my grandparents, which was fun. They had a cottage and a, a lot that I would hang out on. And, you know, to me, I didn't realize why. I just thought, oh, I'm going to their place for the summer. But she had a nervous breakdown over that summer. And again, I didn't understand it. And eventually my grandfather sat me down and explained it to me. But yeah, I had no idea how bad it had gotten. And the truth is, she even kept that from me. Like he was saying, I'll grab him and stuff. And for a while... Uh, previous to that, she was letting him pick me up every Sunday. And, you know, so there was a whole, because she thought I still needed to be, he was still my father is what she thought. Uh, having said that, the interesting or unique part about it is most people outside of relationships think a lot of them. And even like, it's not like one of those things where uh, people say, oh, he's a great guy, but they don't know behind the scenes. I think he actually probably is that guy to everybody, except for when he's in a relationship. Like, I don't think he knows how to sort of, my mother even felt he didn't know how to be a father. He didn't have, his father and him weren't very close. She was close with his father, but he wasn't. And she felt that was sort of where it started. But the interesting part is even now my mom still talks to him. And so it's, it was a weird dynamic. It just seemed like at that point though, in, in his life, he was bothered that he, he could, he was bothered. I think that she wasn't still with him and wanted to be with him. So that was how he reacted is I'm going to stay active in her life by scaring her, essentially. Well, yes, and hijackals do what we call um, hoovering, which means that they want to keep you in their supply chain, but they don't want to be burdened by you. So when they're feeling uneasy about, do I have power over somebody, they'll come back and they'll hoover, like suck you back in for a moment, either by fear or by love bombing you and say, okay, I've got that one securely under my control now. And then they'll go off again and and not do that. So that's where the hypervigilance comes because you're constantly wondering, you know, when are they coming back? What are they going to do? Are we safe? And very hard on the body. You know, we don't use the term nervous breakdown anymore, but it certainly was very prevalent for a long time because it was just the inability to be able to handle the things that were going on um, 
when there was just too much anxiety or concern or lack of safety or a chronic depression or all those things at once and the brain just kind of overloaded my mother had that too and i was two years old so i understand it was similar i got sent away and she went away for a year and a half and um, so yes i understand that but unfortunately, she came back a full-blown hijackal, and my father was completely passive-aggressive, so really bad combination. And then I had the joy of being an only child, so I got it all. <laughs> well, and I'm an only child, too, so I should have. Ah, there you go. Yeah. All right, so we've had these backgrounds, and it does impact us. There's no way that you cannot understand everybody listening that there are deep implications for having this, particularly in the first 10 years of your life. And it's always worth working with someone to talk that through and to listen to things like this. So I'm so glad you're listening because you need some clues as to how other people did it and what they actually uncovered in their psyche, in their emotional life, how it impacts their relationship, how it impacts how you feel and think about yourself and what you feel capable of doing or where you may be held back. All of these things are really big. So what do you think the impact of that was on your, your adult relationships? It's a great question because I've one of the things I noticed that I have as a trait and I'm going to say there's times it served me, but there's definitely times it hasn't is I have the ability to, I guess and I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it, but I have the ability to not go all in, mm -hmm. in the sense that I can, I don't want to say, I don't want to say I can't like turn cold on somebody in the sense of turn cold in a way that, um, I'm aggressively cold with them, but more just in the sense that I can just kind of go, I'm going to turn that feeling off. I'm not going mm -hmm. to, I'm not going to let that impact me. And, and to go back to my father, I know he has that for sure. Like I've seen various times in my life where he had to tell me about a family member sick or what have you. And he can just say it plain as day, but I know deep down, I know it's because he doesn't know how to deal with it. He has, mm -hmm. honestly doesn't know how to do it. And so I feel like I get, whether I got that trait from him or whether I got that because of, that was first 10 years. I'm not sure, but I know I have that trait and, mm -hmm. but I'm constantly always trying to work on it. Like, I, and I think it's also, I've gotten better at letting people in where I never used to do that. And those things I think I carried with me from early on. I think that's a great insight, Corey, because what we're talking about there is attachment style. And we get those attachment styles in those first years of our life, particularly the first five. And you're talking about having a, a little background dismissive attachment disorder. Well, I don't need anybody. Like, I'm fine. You know, that's okay. Whatever. Go away. <laughs> it won't impact me. Little shutdown, you know, very independent, can manage. And when we've done our work, we notice when that little thing comes into play and we say, oh, no, I choose differently. But if we haven't done some work and we don't understand that that mode turns on, then it's really good to do the work and find it because you don't want that to be your go-to backup plan when you revert, when you have high anxiety or you have a, a lot of emotional 
information coming in. You don't want it to be your default program to just detach, put up the wall, go cold, become Teflon, whatever way you want to describe it, right? So I'm glad that you brought that up because it's something for all of us to notice. You know, I had a horrendous situation and and I notice, you know, when that can happen to me, when I get into the thinking, you know, something gets really difficult or whatever, or there's a, a relationship that is going a little bit the wrong way. And uh, there's a little part in my brain that goes, that's okay. There are other people. And no, (laughs) no, you need to stay and work it through and use your skills and catch up with yourself. This is where you are now in life. You're not way back there at three years old and, and get those things going. So do you remember, I ask people this question often, do you remember any confusion when you were young? Like, do you remember ever going, I don't know what's going on? Or did you feel secure? I feel like I was quite secure for a reason. And this is, I guess, a shout out to my mother. But really, when people ask me even about my background, even in business, I always add in, I was raised by a single mother. And the reason I do that, it's it's not to sort of identify with other uh, single mother children or anything like that. But it's because of the impact she had on my life. And I feel like she, whether it was right or wrong, felt she should be my mother and father. And so because of that, I feel like I felt secure because I had that extra love. And then on top of that, my grandfather, again, I'm an only child and my mother's an only child. So we were small but close family. And so my grandfather taught me how to drive a car. He worked on all my cars for me. He got my first car loan and on and on. Um, he basically, as, you know, as a metaphor, he taught me how to catch my first fly ball. Like he was like my surrogate father. And I had, I knew we never said the words but I knew he loved me inside and out. And so I had that. And then on top of that, my father's mother, so my grandmother on the other side, doted on me. And I mean, and I mean, to the extent that she spoiled me, but I still knew I was loved. And she had multiple grandchildren and I was the one she made the fuss over. And again, the weird part, if you look at family dynamics, my father was the only boy that lived and she lost three boys. And she had, I think, six daughters or five. And so she always looked at him different because he was the only boy to carry on the family name and the only boy that lived. And so I think me being an only child made her have this certain feeling for me that I was the only grandchild carrying on the name, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I feel like those things made me secure is that I had the love of a grandfather and hit my, my grandmother on that side, like my grandfather, uh, my mother's mother not to get too deep into it, but my mother's mother also cared for me and thought a lot of me. It's just my grandfather and I had this unique bond. And then my grandmother on the other side had this unique bond. So I felt like I was, I saw enough love. And then also my great grandmothers both were like that with me. So it was like, I got an overabundance from everybody. And then with my father, I knew in his own weird way, he loved me, but he just didn't know how to show it or do, or how to be a father. But yeah, so I don't, if I'm being honest, I think I was fairly secure because I had so many people saying, we love you, and whether they showed it or said it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you were so lucky. That's great. It's great that there were people, particularly your grandfather, because he was a total stand-in for the male figure in your life, and he was present, which is really great. So if you're listening and these things are common in your life where you're waking up to the idea of, oh, that had an impact on me, 
keep listening here because Corey wrote a book called The Book of Why and How. And as I was reading his book, I went back to something near the beginning because I found that what he had to say, and I'm going to read it to you, is really, even though it's a book about, you know, eventually how to be successful in business, there were these pieces that seemed to be an echo of what it is that you can use in a toxic relationship when you are considering leaving. So in the book, he wrote this. Um, you you have um, four four things that you were talking about, and you said that there are four things that you need to do. So here's what he wrote. Uncover your passion. Now that may be, my passion is to have a healthy, happy life and a relationship that's based on mutuality, reciprocity, and equality. The second step was decide on your purpose statement. Well, if you're leaving a toxic relationship, that may be to take myself and my children to safety. And number three is figure out why me. Well, why me? Because you're the only operant adult in the relationship. <laughs> and number four, determine, have a determined how. And that's what I help people with, of course, is to, to understand the why me and get the determined how. But, you know, I really thought that, oh, isn't that interesting? You didn't create that list from getting out of a toxic relationship, but it's so applicable. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's interesting because I hadn't looked at it from that perspective until you just pointed it out. So it's cool because it gives me a, a unique perspective on what I was sharing. And I will say... I mean, there, there, this is, there's so much that could be unpacked with this, but I will say what I find is when people find their why or their purpose, everything changes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, if yeah. I were to make a case for people, uh, if, if people said, what's the one thing you want everybody to know? I, want, I would love for everybody to know the fire in your belly and the power of finding your calling. But to your point, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be, you, you can't necessarily find it when you're still in the toxic relationship. You might be able to, but it's probably less likely. And so you may have to apply whether it's those four steps or work with Roberta to get out of that toxic relationship. But what I feel is for you to become that whole person, everybody really needs a purpose. And I mean, that sounds like a bold statement, but I think it's why so many people say, I can't wait till I retire. And they dislike their job perhaps and say, I'm going to wait till I retire and then do this. And they do put all this pressure on that. And then we hear two weeks later, they pass away as soon as they retire. I think it's because they have no purpose anymore. And the weird part is their purpose. And this goes maybe to being in a relationship. Sometimes why do they, why does the person stay? Well, I think it's just like a job. They stay at this job they hate, but then when you're, when you're done with the job, you lost that purpose of getting up every day to go to that job. Even if you disliked it, you still had a unique purpose. And I mean, I'm getting deep into the, into the rabbit hole here, but I really believe that finding your calling can change people's lives. But I also, to go back to your point, I didn't look at those four approaches like uh, in terms of how you can obviously apply that to getting out of a toxic relationship as well. Yeah. Well, it really struck me. So it'd be interesting for you to think further about that, but you know, I think, I think, of course, you're right. But I think, you know, there's kind of a nose blindness to this idea of find your purpose. It's been so overdone on the internet that I don't think people really listen. So let's put some other words around that. What are we talking about when we say purpose or calling? It, it's, 
you know, let's not have the pie in the sky, grand blue sky vision and all of that. What is it viscerally that is happening when you do know what your purpose is? So, I mean, there's a couple of things I would say there. I mean, if I described it for me, how it feels, it's, this is the best way I can describe it, but then I will dive deeper into your question. But people always ask me, what does it feel like? Why would I care? And I, and it's a weird thing where you, if you don't know what it feels like, then you don't understand why you should care. But once you know, you can never lift the curtain again. You already know and you can't ever go back. Like I could never go back to not knowing it. So what it feels like to me is if you've ever had a day or a year where you actually were that kid that ran down, down the stairs for Christmas to see your presence, that's how I feel every day when I open my eyes. Every day, and it's like a fire in my belly. Every day I get wake up and I'm excited to take on a new day. I actually get disappointed sometimes to go to sleep because I'm so excited to get up the next day and do it again. I will say too, Roberta, you hit a key thing. Our show used to be called Conversations with Passion. And the reason I changed the name is because so many people were starting to kick back with the idea of find your passion or you won't be happy. You know, and, and I'm, I don't like that either, like saying you're not fulfilled if you don't find your passion. The reason I use the word purpose, but I will describe it further, is because I think they're different. I think passion is what you do. And I say this in the book as well. Passion is what you do. Purpose is why you're actually doing it. So to me, what purpose is, it's, it's why you were put here. It's the thing that you can do and nobody else can do. And so uh, for me, Maybe it's launching Blue Talks and helping people get on stages like Blue Talks and get their written word out through Blue Talks. Uh, so maybe that's one of the reasons I was put here. But the bigger reason I'm doing it is because I want to create a little ripple in every person's life that I come across and spend more than 10 minutes with. And so that's what I want to do if you talk you know, viscerally what it is I'm trying to do, because it still isn't intangible. But... I feel it's the thing I was put here to do. So if you can figure out what's the, what's the reason I was put here, what's the one thing that I can do like nobody else and help people like nobody else, that to me is what your why is or your purpose or all those other names we put on it. I think we have to name stuff for people to know what we're talking about. But I really feel, again, it's what's the thing that when I do, time stands still, I have a fire in my belly, I get excited every day to wake up, and I see the impact that I'm having on other people by doing it. Okay, I want to interject something new into that conversation and move it forward. I think it's really important what you just described it as your purpose is why you do what you do. So you always have a purpose. But if you don't know what it is you're doing, and you don't become very acquainted with that and be conscious of it and aware of it and alert to it, then you are just you are like a pinball machine. You're just bouncing off things. And I think it's important that a purpose is not a should. You know, I Mm -hmm. see so often on Facebook, like we went through this thing at the beginning of COVID. Like if you don't come out of COVID with a book and 14 videos and a million dollar program, you've wasted your time. And oh, that offended me, Corey. I would write into that. No, if you need to rest, rest. If you need to think, think. If you need to walk in nature, walk in nature. Everybody's different. Stop the shaming about success. Success is different. You may be successful by not falling apart during isolation. You know, everybody's different. So I like to take the should out of it. You know, people ask me why I do what I do. Well, why I do what I do is not a should. And when you're defining it, and I'd love your take on this because you're the expert here, but I think that there's this sort of idea that 
in marketing and positioning and all those things that you got to find something and stick to it and you got to have a positioning statement. And if it doesn't resonate all the way down, that doesn't matter. Just get up and do it every day. People ask me what my purpose is. It's really clear. I know what floats my boat and flips my skirt. I help people successfully navigate the journey from recognizing to recovering and rebuilding after a toxic relationship. I've been there, done that. I have the nasty video. I have the ripped t-shirt. I've got it all. I understand that. So I am passionate and purposeful about how I do that, but it doesn't deplete my energy. And that's where I'd like the the thoughts that you have, because sometimes purpose people get very tired, not, not tired from just doing tasks. I don't mean that. I mean, kind of soul tired, like, oh, this is so hard. And yeah, I got to slug on because it's my purpose. I think that it should come with joy, that that you have chosen something that is you can tirelessly be excited about it, not on the physical level, because you will get tired. But but like you say, you you get to your office in the morning and like, hey, what's going to happen today? Not, oh, I got to do this again. What do you say? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked it that way, because it makes me think of a talk I delivered two years ago, maybe, where somebody in the audience asked me about this in terms of, okay, well, this is all good and great. Because I was talking about uh, the what and the why. So I was talking with the passion person. When I was talking with the passion, a person said, well, this is all sounds great and, and fine. I want to do this. And it's kind of interesting because I work with sometimes with clients. And it's like the client's like, should I bring him in here? Because he might get some people to go, this isn't my calling. I'm going to go do something else. But <laughs> yes, this guy right. was saying, well, I'd love to do, you know, I'd love to follow my passion just tell me how I can get paid to do it because you're getting paid to do it. How do I do that? And I was very clear in my answer. I said, here's, here's the challenge with or um, the, you know, the, the oxymoron almost of that statement. Here's the challenge with that statement. If you're trying to figure out what you can do that you can get paid to do, then it's not your passion. Because the things that I do every day, and I don't, I try not to say this too loudly too often because I don't want clients to not pay me, but I would show up and do this for free. And I, I purposely, and by the way, my life wasn't always like this. I mean, I can die, I can talk to you about when the switch happened, but I wasn't that guy. I was, now I'm the person that everything I do, now let's, you know, take the exception of there's the odd thing you have to do if you're running a virtual event, you have to do some little back stuff that you'd rather not be doing perhaps. But 90% of what I do, I would absolutely do for free. And the things I don't like doing, I would still do them for free because they allow me to spend 90% doing what I love doing. Mm-hmm. So for me, back to your point, it's not it's not a task-driven thing. It's something I love doing. It feels like, I actually used to say this, you know what, if you catch me working, you let me know and I'll stop. Because that's how I feel. I don't feel like I'm working. Yeah. I watch a show called, uh, it's, it's a kind of a, what do you call it? Like a Guilty pleasure, but it's called ridiculousness. And it's like America's Funniest Videos, but maybe for adults a little bit. And that show, I watch it, and they're on there laughing, and and Rob goes, is this really a job? And the other one's like, I don't know. And that's how I feel every day. Like, they don't feel like they're working, but yet they're getting paid. I don't either. And so I think if it feels like, A, you're just putting in time, but you're calling it your passion, then it's probably not your real purpose or passion. Or B, if you're trying to figure out how to get paid to do it, then it's probably not your passion or purpose. Most people I've discovered, and this is a people don't like hearing this because they want to have the what's the easy answer to get paid to do it but the truth is most people i've discovered that have found the true calling or whatever word we want to put on that actually did it for free for a while 
because they knew it was their calling because they fell in love with it. And then the money started showing up or then the way to make money at it showed up. When I first started speaking, which was one of my big passions, when I first started speaking, I actually found my way into it through stand-up comedy by mm-hmm. actually bombing on stages in stand-up. <laughs> and so I wasn't getting paid to do that. I was getting paid like $5 from the door every third week, but I wasn't getting paid to do it. It helped me eventually find speaking, which I did get paid to do. And I still end up speaking at t- times back then for no fee. So my point of that is I wasn't trying to get paid from stand-up. I actually just, I, for me, I wanted to conquer it. I wanted to figure out how I could get laughs. And by the way, I didn't figure it out for a long time, sadly. <laughs> but, but the point of this is that for me, I went into this knowing, okay, even if I never get paid, I'm okay with this. And I feel like too many people ask, how do I get paid to do this? And then I'll do it. But again, it goes back to your point. Then all of a sudden, it's a job again. It goes right back full circle to the thing of job. I said to an insurance group one time that I was speaking in front of, I said, can anybody answer me how you could retire fully if you've never put any money away, if you don't have money to start? And I went on this big list. And of course, the whole room of 400 insurance providers couldn't give me an answer. And I said, well, I figured it out. Because to me, what we all describe as a job is the thing we have to show up and do every day. And I haven't been doing that for years. So I said, I retired at 20. And if I, and that's when I said, if you ever catch me working, you let me know and I'll stop. And I had some of the insurance brokers, the younger guys, jump in front of me in the hotel elevator later on and say, we're going on the Corey Poirier 20-year-old retirement plan. So they did get it. But the point I was making of it is retired is selected because we usually say retired from a job. And what I'm saying is when you find out what you love, you hear that cliche, you'll never work a day in your life. That's how I truly feel. I understand the cliche, even though I think it's overdone. I understand it because I don't feel like I'm working. So that was a kind of a tangent on it, but that's my thinking on it. Okay. Well, two things. First of all, I want to apply this to toxic relationships, finding yourself in one and getting out. And secondarily, I just want to piggyback on the retirement thing. People say to me, when are you going to retire? And I tell them, oh, I am retired. And they said, well, you work all the time. I said, no, my definition of retirement is the time in life when you get to do exactly what you want to do all day. And that's what I'm doing. So I must be retired. And they always have this quizzical look on their face like, wow, I never thought of it that way. But it still, as I said, floats my boat and flips my skirt to get up every morning and help people move and recover and rebuild their lives after a toxic relationship or recognize that they're in one and realize the impact. And then they wake up to the fact that maybe I should have choices here. Maybe I should investigate whether or not leaving is a good idea. So all of those things. But, you know, when we're talking about purpose and we're talking about all those things that you talked about, I think about somebody just waking up in that in that toxic relationship. They're tired. They're worn down, torn down, put down. They can hardly put one foot in front of the other. They're hypervigilant. They're exhausted. If you can get just a little glimmer of there are other ways to do life. Not everybody is walking this path. And if I can just bring myself up to that place of saying, I would like this to be better. I deserve to be able to move from this cage that I find myself in emotionally and open the doors. Maybe I'm not going to go from where I am right now to springing through those doors and all of that, but I can begin to entertain the idea that there is something I'm moving toward that is something of my choosing, something that is better. 
And I understand that from the passion and purpose point of view, too. So you may wonder, you know, why are we talking about business on Save Your Sanity? Well, toxic people do business, too. But in particular, I'm talking to Corey Poirier because we have this crossover. In the book that he wrote, it actually applies in so many ways to the very thing of recognizing and realizing the impact of a toxic relationship and knowing what you can do. So it's very important. And I want you to know where you find him. You know, it's important to find him. That You find him at thatspeakerguy.com. Now you can remember that, but it's in the notes below. Corey Poirier at thatspeakerguy.com. And if you're interested in his story about public speaking, he has something to share for you. So you go to the book of public speaking.com and he has a free copy of his book for you, the book of public speaking.com. And that'll be in the notes as well. So, Corey, these applications that apply to business. I have discovered in reading your book really apply to so many other aspects of life. And so I want to ask you a question about directly about toxic relationships. Um, How do you think with all that I've just said, how do you think that applying your why your purpose can actually help you dealing with a toxic relationship? So this is, I mean, I want to share this because I think it's important for people to also know both sides, meaning where I am now, but where I was. And so I was in toxic relationships um, when I was, I'm going to say late teens to mid twenties. And I'm talking um, relationships with a significant other. And they were toxic from a verbal point of view, not a physical point of view, but a verbal point of view. You know, one was um, basically, you know, I'll give an example. Well, I'll only sleep over if you go to my house and get my parents up and get all these five things, you know, and like, it was just always, uh, basically you're going to be my, my mat to walk on. And then I was in another one where it wasn't necessarily that, but the person was just always unhappy and always made me feel like I was part of the reason for the unhappiness. Like I, the person didn't use an alarm, wanted me to wake them up every day. And sometimes I'd wake them up and they'd say, you woke me up wrong. Now I'm going to have my whole day's ruined. You know, so I I was in those situations before I discovered, you know, this why of mine that changed things. But I also want to share that I was had generalized anxiety for years. I was a hypochondriac, hypochondriac. So if people are wondering what that is, uh, if you hear about different diseases and you start developing the symptoms, that's a hypochondriac. And I had I battled it actively for about four years, which meant that I was in the hospital more often sometimes, not more hospital, but waiting rooms more often than some of the doctors in those waiting rooms. And so I did go down this path. And when the switch happened for me, it was around mid-20s. Uh, and this is going to sound weird, but the start of the switch was when I, that night I performed stand-up comedy which is probably why I go back to that often. But I was a pessimist. I mean, I always say that you can't be a hypochondriac and feel you're going to die every day and also be an optimist at the exact same time, equally in the same body. Right. But I switched from that guy and it basically helped get rid of, uh, all but get rid of my anxiety and, and hypochondria, not overnight, but fairly quickly, whenever I started this path down finding my why. So that's probably why I'm so passionate about it. But in terms of dealing with a toxic relationship. Here's what I've discovered. Now, the challenge when I say this is you're always like, well, which is first the chicken or the egg? So the challenge is after I got out of those toxic relationships, that's when I started 
um, finding my why and living this purposeful life. Well, once that happened, though, Roberta, then I started investing in, you probably read about it in the book, but positive deposits. I started basically um, reading inspirational things. I started listening to speakers that were inspirational. I started uh, listening to podcasts that were inspirational. So I consider that that I was building up. I was making deposits into me and I was building up my ability to withstand the, to- the toxin. And what happens then is then I don't want to be around toxic. So I start surrounding myself and I did this exercise. I think I talked about it in the book. But the surrounding yourself with exercise where I wrote down 20 people I spent my time with and who's negative and who's positive because I recognized when I was being toxic, it was when I was surrounding myself with toxic people. So what I would say is how this relates to other toxic people is if you can start building up, you know, making those deposits and not withdrawing all the time and get an overflow, then what's going to happen is when one negative thing comes in, it's not going to hit you the same way. So whenever as a hypochondriac, a toxic person could take me down in an instant. Today, they would have to work at me for two days. They'd have to tie me up with a rope and work me over for two days with negativity. And to be honest, I still don't think it would stick. But the big difference is I found my why. And what that did was it changed who I was at the core to where I wanted to be a different person. And because of that, I started acting differently, which again comes down to the started um, reading more stuff, feeding my, I'll call it feeding my mind with the right stuff. And didn't make as many withdrawals. And that changed everything. Now, why I say the chicken before the egg is that's easy to say if you've left a toxic relationship and you're now trying to get prepared so that if you ever get in another one, even if it's at work, you've built up that. But what I believe is if you start doing some of these things, even when you're in a toxic relationship, things will start to get better. If you start changing your self-talk, things will start. And it would be slowly. And if you're with a toxic person, it's going to take you way more time. But I believe over time... It'll start, you'll start getting to the point where I don't want to be surrounded by this that much because I'm talking so good about myself now. And so that's what I found has served me really well is it's like I built up almost like a mechanism to help me so that I have this inner flow of positivity that helps me deflect that negativity that comes in every now and then. And an exercise you may have heard of that really helped me in my life was E plus R equals O is an equation. Have you ever heard of this, Roberta? No. Okay, so E plus R equals O. What it stands for is the event is the E, R is the response, and O is the outcome. And so, and I used to have to consciously do this. But what I would do is I realized that I can't control any event. You cut me off in traffic, I can't control it. I can't control if somebody's yelling at me. I can't control those things. But what I can control is my response, which is the R. And that's going to dictate my outcome. So what I found is that when I worked next to a person that was negative, back when I was working for somebody else, I would, uh, I would say, okay, I can't control that they're being negative as they talk to me or in the office, they're negative or whatever. But what I can control is how I respond to them doing that. And by me changing my response, I got to control my outcome. So I still was still in control. That equation, thinking it through was one of the hardest things ever. But once I finally cemented it, it changed even the way I dealt with somebody cutting me off in traffic. But here's the key thing. Most people miss out on what that E plus R equals O. And I don't know if I created this part. I didn't create the equation. But to me, I look at that plus when I say E plus R equals O. The plus is the, the breather. It's the time you take to pause before you react. Because mm-hmm. if somebody cuts you off in traffic and you react immediately, the reaction is almost always going to be bad. But mm-hmm. if you go pause and think about this, and what you might think about is maybe they have a sick child in the car. Maybe it's not about me. Whatever the maybe it is. Maybe they just need the bathroom really bad. <laughs> Whatever it is, you might make it funny. But the point is, 
maybe they have to do this or maybe this is going on, but maybe it's not about me because it usually isn't. And that's the pause. That's the plus sign. Mm -hmm. And then it allows you to respond appropriately, but it's not easy to do. I think there's another piece in there because this is exciting. Let me piggyback on that. I think that that pause also gives you an opportunity to say, who am I? Because you're going to demonstrate who you are by what your response is. So if you say, I'm a compassionate person and I'm about to tell that person that their mother wears trench boots, you know, that's not who I want to be. So if you take that moment to say, who am I? You know, people ask me all the time, Corey, they'll say, you know, I have this hijackal mother and she's horrible and I, I've got her out of my life and everything. And then they'll write in one of my groups or my membership program and they'll say, I just heard she has a diagnosis that's terminal. What should I do? And my answer is always, who are you? Mm-hmm. And they write back and they say, what do you mean? I want to know what to do. I said, well, if you know who you are and you know what you live by and you know your values, then you'll know what to do without regret. I can't tell you what to do because every situation is different. You know, some mothers are so toxic in that scenario that to go near them would be awful and you may not have the personal strength. You know that it would devastate you and you you have children to look after and a life to lead and you know you can't do it. Like for me, you know, I'm fairly strong. And so when my mother was ill, my father had already passed, I actually took care of her and she was horrible, just horrible. Little example. Three days before she died, I put my hand on hers because heaven knows she wouldn't hold mine. I put my hand on her and I said, you know, mom, you never told me that you loved me. And she looked down her nose and said, I know. Right. So the question is, who are you? I did it because I knew that she had alienated every single person in her whole life, except the people that she gave gave things to to keep them around and I knew that she would be completely lonely so my compassion overrode my distaste for the situation but I also knew I was strong enough to be there to go through it and know that I could come out the other side healthier and happier and lived without regrets that's not right for everybody somebody may just know that that would be devastating to hear those words would just like be the final straw in their ability to collapse, you know? So it's really important that that we look at that. And that little pause place is is really who am I as well as um, let me think about the other person. So I think those are a good combination of events. So before we go, um, what's something that you have learned of the many things you've already shared, but is there something else that you have learned that you keep in mind at those moments when when a moment could go in any direction? Is there a thought that you have or a m- mantra that you use? Well, it's it's intriguing because when you were sharing that story, uh, part of me, like I, I, I laughed to myself because I've had that scenario with another person in my life. And, and, you know, I just thought of them because of the fact that they were that way as well in terms of, uh, I mean, there was time I said, you never told me you love me. And they said, that's because I don't <laughs> you know, like it was. So, I mean, but those, those things happen, but um, yeah. So what I typically do is so, and this goes again, a lot of stuff, as you said, we talked about relates to business, but I actually think it just as much relates to personal, like the E plus R equals O you can apply that to a business situation or a personal, but so same thing here, what I would typically do. So I'll use the example of, 
What would I do in a stressful situation, i.e. I'm going to speak on a stage is when I use it. What would I do when I'm going through the door of somebody who I know I, this isn't going to serve me best to be here, but I need to be here. And that could be any scenario, right? That could be a funeral, you know, where I might be, I don't want to be here, but I know I need to. So what I do is I tell myself a positive story about that somebody told me about me impacting their life in a positive way. So what I mean is it could be, you could call it what people call in business, a testimonial. But, you know, if I go to speak on a stage, I might remember a time when a single mother told me because you shared the story about your single mother, it made me realize that maybe my kids will respect all the sacrifices I made. And so I remember that and go, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. But if I was going through the door, let's say of a funeral, I might remember something that person told me that was humorous. That gets me kind of in a little bit of a lighter mood before I walk through that door. So I, I kind of self-talk, I guess you would say, but I, and I make it applicable to the situation, but I just root through my memory of something that will get me in the right mind frame. So uh, I hear Tony Robbins, I, you know, I heard him speak one time and he talked about um, not neuro-linguistic programming, but like behavioral programming, where if you're going to sell something, you go and lean to one person and, and they, they actually got us to do this in an audience. If you're approaching one person to sell a pen to them and he says, now think of your wedding day or the best day of your life when your child was born and sell the pen. And people raise their chest bigger and they're smiling and they're more jovial and what have you. And then he goes, lean to the next person. Think about the worst day of your life. And then the person slumped and they're talking lower and they're not as, uh, they're not as positive in a mind frame. And so I carried that in my life. Just that one little exercise. I said, well, if he can reframe himself that way, if people can do that in the audience, why can't I do that in different life experiences? And so for me, I always do that. So, and by the way, if it was a scenario where somebody was being toxic with me, then I'm going to remind myself that I've been in this situation before and I've survived. And I might think of one of those two (laughs) ex-relationships that I was in Mm -hmm. or whatever that might look like. But that I would, it's always, it's a self-talk, but it's not really a mantra. It's just a reminder. I, I call it a point of reference or a reframe. Okay, great. Well, we've had a big talk today with a lot of pieces, and I hope that you have the time to go back and listen to this again if it's brown value to you. My guest today is Corey Poirier. You find him at thatspeakerguy.com. If you're interested in the speaking world, he has a free book for you at thebookofpublicspeaking.com. You can find that. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your journey with us, Corey. It was my absolute pleasure. And, you know, as we said from the top, my mission, if I'm able to even create one ripple for one person, even just the start of a ripple, then it was a thousand percent worthwhile. And I know it was worthwhile. And there are people listening who are going to say, ah, yes, I can do this. I have a little step to move forward on. So thank you for being with us on Save Your Sanity Podcast. Again, my guest, Corey Poirier. Find him at thatspeakerguy.com. You can find me at for relationship help, F-O-R relationship, H-E-L-P.com. That's also the name of my YouTube channel. And you know where to find the Save Your Sanity Podcast because you're listening to it. Until we talk again. Be very good to yourself because you matter. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights, some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that, and so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, 
please do so at patreon.com slash saveyoursanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.